Welcome to Conversations with Toy, a blogcast tackling life one episode at a time. This is the time to air out life's craziest moments. This space is all about speaking about life's hang-ups and ways in which we can leave better than when we started. Topics are all about ways we can find space to be better in life, love, mental space and health. Friday. I am so excited to be with you guys another Friday. I'm hoping that you have had the most amazing week here in the store household. We are recovering from COVID. I can't remember if I said that we had it last episode, but we are recovering. Now the CDC is losing its mind telling people that you basically need five days Um, from your positive uh, results and you basically can go back into the world but just wear your mask I think that is ridiculous and I know for a fact that in my mind I'll say it from in my mind which for today's episode or today's discussion I believe is 100% correct as in the in the fact that the CDC is airing on getting people back to work trying to get the economy back to where it needs to be and it that's the only thing that makes sense because money talks when you are more motivated by money versus the safety of people then this is where you are with it so the cdc is basically like listen you go ahead and do whatever you need to do for you don't even worry about it like just put your mask on because if that's the case what would be the point of staying in the house for five days if all you have to do is put your mask on it's not as if the 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 virus is gonna all of a sudden magically leave your system Um, The issue with that is that we are having to wait for the kids to get retested before they can even go back to school. And to be honest with you, testing is hard. There are no home kits. There are dramas with even just getting the test um, done and taken. There are two-hour weeks or two weeks, uh, you know, appointments that are two weeks available. So if you don't jump on it right away, then you don't get an appointment. It has been very stressful trying to navigate all that but as far as the health and concern of everyone in our home i would say we're doing pretty good we're on the mend. no one is having fevers um you know we're having sore throats coughs here and here just here and there just little things like that headaches no one told me about those headaches but those headaches are extremely difficult sometimes and it'll just come you know come and go and then let me tell you so I'm the type of person if I sit down for five minutes I can fall asleep in a drawer let me just be clear I have tested this theory I have slept in a dresser drawer back in the day um and don't ask me how I even got to that point I think I was drinking but yeah back in college we took a girl's trip with some of my friends and yeah I fell asleep in a dresser drawer but back then I was small enough to fit inside a dresser drawer and sleep comfortably like oh I didn't feel like crooked or jacked up or anything but now that I'm a little older lately if I go to if I go to sit down like I'll automatically go to bed so it's nothing for my kids to be talking to me and then I'll be like sleep but with COVID I find it's getting even worse so my energy levels are up and down so at some point I have this burst of energy and in those bursts of energy, let me tell you, I'm trying to get all of the things done, like clean the house from top to bottom, try to cook some food, all these different things. When that energy falls down, I'm doing absolutely nothing. People have asked me, how are we surviving with the kids? Because they had it as well. They were probably down for maybe two days. Um, after that, I want to say they were pretty okay. Again, still dealing with the symptoms, but they weren't, you know, they were, they're kids, so they want to play. They want to get back to, you know, life. And so that's probably been the hardest for them because they want to get back to school, all of those good things. So we'll keep you updated as far as going back to school and how that all goes down when they finally get to that point. Our week has been fine. I feel like we're kind of back to being cooped into the house. I'm used to being on the go. Obviously, that cannot happen. And so we're just going to take it one day at a time. Our holiday was good. Um, New Year's, we didn't do much. Again, we're in, you know, we're 
healing from COVID. So normally for the New Year's, I would have like a big spread of food. I would have just all these different things. So I normally would do all these desserts, all these dinners, you know, this big, huge dinner, decorate the house. I didn't do any of that this year, to be honest with you. I didn't do any of that. I mean, it's a decent dinner. Um, New Year's Eve, we ate that and that was it. There was no desserts. I didn't decorate. I didn't even order any of the decorations. And I'm so grateful that I didn't because it was weighing on me like, should I really go ahead and do this? You know, the kids would be disappointed. And then when I thought like, oh, the kids wouldn't even care. They don't care. My oldest was like, are we not doing the big decorations? Are we not doing that? Because, you know, even before the virus, I would do this every year because we would normally be home. I would think one year, maybe one or two years since we've been parents, we may have gone, my husband and I have gone out for New Year's, but it's not even as safe as you want it to be. So nine times out of 10, it's always easier and better to be at home. So because of that, we always had our own like store family um, New Year's Eve. And listen, my energy was on depleted. I actually fell asleep New Year's Eve about eight o'clock. And if it wasn't for my dad calling me, he was trying to do like an early, let me say happy new year's to y'all. Cause I'm sure you, you know, y'all would be doing your thing. And I'm like, there's no thing to be done, but if he hadn't called me, I would have slept right through the new year's. I'm sure my husband probably would have nudged me like right before the, you know, the midnight point, because we did have champagne. We did have um, sparkling apple cider for the kids. And I had to order that through a target delivery. Um, but that was it. And again and then after that once I that once I got up I think I got up about 11 40 my dad called me about 11 40 which didn't help me to be up and then we had the champagne but then my husband and I then stayed up until about 2 30 because then we were watching the CNN with all the drama and foolishness of watching um, Andy Cohen and all them being drunk on CNN and all that but yeah we we were then up or Don Lemon and on CNN but yeah, we then were up for like maybe two and a half hours. And then we just went to sleep and got up like a normal day the next day. And we literally had a very normal day, made a huge breakfast like normal, just sat around watching TV because we're not necessarily going anywhere. Um, a lot of people that I know have had it um, recently, probably around the same time I've had it. And let me tell you, the irresponsibility on some people have really have been jarring I've seen people out at different events I've seen people at all kinds of stuff I actually ended up seeing somebody tweet um and was just like listen you knew you were sick why did you come out blah 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 blah. you're infecting other people but that's where people are and I feel like the CDC is kind of high high five in that and the people that I feel the worst for are the healthcare workers healthcare workers are getting hit with this as well it's not like it bypasses them people are people and they're having to report back to work as long as they don't have fevers. And it's hard because, you know, they're working with the vulnerable and they're going to end up getting other people sick. This particular strand, people are calling it the, um, I think it's called the Amarikan and people are calling the Marian. And this particular strand is extremely um, contagious. So, and, and, and it really is because let me just say, I have been at different media events from the last few months and very meticulous, like my plan for how we come into our house and how we change our clothes and take our shower after we've been in and out of the house. Um, I've worked and been around crowds and crowds of people and I've kept my mask on, kept my distance, done every all the things, right? And not any time draw all this time going out into the crowd have I gotten it. Not one time. The two years before, everything never never got it. Made sure we were meticulous. We didn't have people in at our home. All these different things. Only to go to visit my family and then we ended up getting it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we got it from them. I'm just suggesting that, again, this strand is... Um, more contagious and then here we are and all of us that were together we all got it just about all of us got it and that's the type of stuff that I'm talking about when it comes to you know getting through and then thinking you're doing all the right things and then you discover that you're not very 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 interesting just how everything is going down and I was just more taken back by the fact that what in the world did we get to the point where we do everything we need to do only to turn around and get it? It didn't even matter. 
but enough about our COVID expirations. We have really just been enjoying this family time, downtime, taking care of each other, checking in with other people. And shout out to my amazing friends and family um, who really have been holding us down. We had a friend who lives in Baltimore who happened to be visiting here in Philadelphia. She stocked us up on all the soups that we needed, the orange juice that we needed. And, you know, she didn't come into the house. She just dropped it on our porch. Super grateful. My neighbor has been calling us every single day to check on us, uh, making sure that we're okay, making sure that we're healthy and making sure we don't need anything. She did a, um, we had already went and did all this. We had gotten all this medicines and things before we even found out that we had it. We had a bunch of medicines and things. And then we found out we had it. We had to do like an online service to kind of bring us some more things. But the medicine that I had, I wasn't getting any relief. My neighbor went out and got me what I needed. It was hands down exactly the thing that I needed to get myself to becoming better. And, you know, when you see your friends stepping up like that, when you see your neighbors sending that care and love, when you see people who are willing to just drop whatever they're doing and help you in any way, because, you know, there's five of us. And, you know, it would be different if some of us wasn't infected and some of us weren't, but and even still, like just having us be in direct contact with someone who was, I would have treated the same way. So shout out to our amazing friends. Shout out to our friends who just really showed this much care for us and helping us to become better. We really wouldn't have got through this without you. So I just want to say publicly, thank you for all that you have done on a normal basis. Because let me tell you something about my friends. My friends are, I call my them, I call them my family because my friends are my family members they have always stepped up to the plate um to be honest with you if I had to I probably would definitely say that my friends would hold it down quicker than my own family now that may sound ignorant rude and I know some people in my family are listening but at the end of the day I'm talking about we're talking about for people done we're talking about actions and so I have to shout my friends out y'all are always about that action there had never been a time really honestly and specifically the friends that are consistent you guys are so bomb. Like never a time when I've needed something and and things have gone left. Never. So if you're listening to this episode and it sounds like I am sounding different, it's because I am. My voice obviously is going up and down, but we are still here making sure that we give you the most excellent episode that we possibly can. And today we have Arshel Monsano. She is here. She's going to um, come and talk about her new book. It's called Kids in Cuffs that's correct like handcuffs kids and cuffs um this book is extremely important as we talk about cultural diversity we're talking about um the reasons why black and brown kids are handcuffed or suspended or arrested or all the different things that black and brown kids go through um versus their counterparts now you may be sitting here listening saying oh i don't want to talk about race i don't want to talk about this but let me just tell you as a mother who is raising a black son, two black daughters. This is a very important, necessary conversation. And I'm going to tell you why. Even in, and I'll talk about this in the episode, but even with me growing up, you know, being in in, a, in our city school, you would see cops in our, um, in our school. They would patrol the hallways. They would patrol after school. They were in the school physically with us and oftentimes that was because of them having to handle certain situations they would have to be there as a deterrent and a lot of times they would you know obviously because our school was mostly black and brown kids you know they would be there and you would see these different issues now when I was in junior high we had the same type of issues even in my junior high and I noticed that a lot of times the resources and the ways that kids would be suspended for the reasons that they would be suspended would be astronomical compared to a counterpart counterpart and so Arshel talks about that in her book um, a little bit about her um, she has collectively worked in advocacy public policy and organizing for 15 years where she has been responsible for implementing strategies to create sustainable change she wrote Kids in Cuffs, striving for equality, equity, and empathy in education because she is passionate about forging meaningful change through public policy for all 
students. I think that's the problem. People here, when you start to speak up for brown and black and brown students, it feels like you're saying you're only for black and brown students. But the whole point is to get meaningful equity for everybody to be treated as equal instead of it being a target for black and brown students to have certain issues happening. That I think that's the part that people miss. Um, in this book, it's going to be about longstanding discriminatory practices, whether in intentional or not, and how they have manifested a colossal achievement gap between brown, blacks, and, st and students of color in comparison to their white peers. And yes, disproportionate school discipline starts as early as daycare and can persist through high school, leading to the school-to-prison pipeline. So basically, if a student is in daycare and they already start this process of getting in trouble or they're looked at as a bad student or they're looked at as a problematic student that carries them from from basically daycare all the way through high school and then opens the door for them to get involved with you know higher levels of crime later on and then god forbid they're in the system and that's the line that we're taking so we talked very much about what is a bad student? How are brown and black students even seen as a black student? Uh, as Not as a black student, but as a problem student, as problematic. Um, when you have two students doing the same thing, let's say, you know, just with a uniform, and they're, the black and brown students are given a harsher punishment than that their counterpart, like how that is completely wrong and built in systematic racism. And so, again... We have difficult conversations. We have beautiful conversations. We have uh, conversations that lead to people disagreeing. We have conversations that lead to people agreeing. This is the point of the entire show. We don't always, I'm not a yes person. This show was never based upon being yes persons. People are bringing their books. They're bringing their conversations. They're bringing their, their stories, their testimonies to us so that we can have these conversations about what it means to be whatever we've had conversations about all kinds of different things relationships and everything in between so go ahead and give a listen as we bring our show in and listen conversations bad good indifferent you know disagreeable they're all worthy to be had because we learn from each other and i think that's the biggest thing people have to be willing to listen be willing to listen and, 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 and clutch, unclutch your jaws so that you're not, so that you're able to receive what someone is saying. I think that's the problem too. We're like clutching our jaws because we're hoping and seeing things and we're like, I know something's going to go left. Like you have to get, be open to conversation and be open to change. Be open to listening to different points of view without becoming offensive so that you can receive the parts that are for you and then leave the rest. So that's what we're going to do today. I hope you enjoy the conversation, but better yet, I hope that you support and purchase her book, Kids in Cuffs. Um, even if you're not like, okay, I, I totally agree with this topic. Why don't you just buy the book and then formulate your own thoughts? The book is 99 cents. It's an ebook found on Amazon. I'm going to put all that information in the, in the show notes, but yeah, support, read it for yourself. I'm a biggest advocate, always have been since I've been a child, an advocate of finding things out for yourself reading things, understanding things, getting knowledge. I read books all the time on different topics because you can listen to someone else's point of view and you get to learn something. I think this, our country is doing a horrible job of being able to listen when points of, of, of conversations don't agree. We don't want to listen. We tap out. So this conversation today is going to be very much an eye-opening situation for some and to some confirmation of things that is already understood. But whatever the case, we're going to take the time to lean in, to listen, and to gather the information that we need so that we can become a better citizen. I think we learn better when we understand people's under reasons for why they do the things that they do. And we may not understand it, but we can have five seconds of empathy so that we can then learn from that and then build the bridge to become better and work together. Hello, Conversations with Toy family. We have an amazing treat. I hope that this Friday is finding you especially well. We'll get into my stuff. Um, you know, we already had that conversation about how I'm doing, but I want to say that we have an amazing guest today. You know, I am about my guests. We try to bring you the best of the best, and we're going to have a very good conversation. This conversation is a conversation that to me, as a mother um, is completely long overdue. We have Miss Arshel Monsanto. She is here. Um, we are going to talk about her new book, Kids in Cuffs. 
So right off the bat, when you hear the title Kids in Cuffs, you are probably thinking, why are we having this discussion? We have a lot of deep conversations with Conversations with Toy, but this one is especially close to me. As a parent, um, even as a person who obviously went through school myself, there has been such a disparaging um, way of ways that the system treats our Black and Brown children when it comes to suspensions, uh, uh, what's other word, not other than suspensions, but just how we are treated in the school system. And then again, when you take them outside of the school system, how they are treated juvenile wise. I used to be a worker that actually worked with juvenile um, children that were in children and youth or with juvenile probation. A lot of it was supposed to help them to rehabilitate. What made our situation different was that it was black owned company that came in and basically gave life skills to black and brown children because there was a huge gap and huge need for it. But not all black and brown children are gifted to be able to be in that type of situation if they should find themselves in whatever trouble or whatever they may be in. So we have Miss Arshelle. Arshelle, can you just go ahead and give um, a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself? Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy new year. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm really excited and I'm happy that you're starting to feel better. Yes. So my name is Arshel Monsanto and I'm the new author of a book called Kids and Cuffs, Striving for Equity and Empathy in Education. And just a bit about me, I'm the mom to a five-year-old. He's in kindergarten. He had a morning today, so I'm, I'm still trying to recover from that. <laughs> um, I'm a, yes. I'm a wife and I've had a career in public policy for 15 years. The first um, half of my career, I worked in higher education and then I pivoted to do nonprofit work. Also like in the public policy space, specifically looking at public health, did that for about 10 years. And then most recently I shifted my public policy focus to educational equity. And that's when I became I would say like re-engage with the subject of the book. Um, in the book, I talk about suspensions, expulsions, even arrests for students. And Toya, you talked about a bit of that um, earlier today. I do like a deeper dive. And this is important to me because number one, when I was in high school, and I don't know if any of you have ever been like in high school, 17, thinking you know everything, not making the best decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So I got myself into trouble when I was in high school. And for me, it didn't really have ramifications until about 20 years later. So okay. I went on to this life. Like you talked about um, your experience working with kids that were in the juvenile justice system. That didn't happen to me um, directly, I would say. So, you know, I go on about my life and then I become a mother and I find out that the things that I went through in high school on this subject are still prevalent. It's still happening in schools every single day. And because I wasn't in that space anymore, I didn't think about it. But we have students that are adversely impacted by these things every single day, especially black and brown students, especially boys. Yes, and I, I'm glad that you said that because here in Philadelphia, there is a huge, and I mean absolutely out of control, huge policy that is, on, in my opinion, totally against um, Black and Brown students. And like you said, young men in general, where two different offenses could be happening or what's the same offense could be happening and a child of a different counterpart gets a slap on the wrist compared to um, our Black and Brown boys specifically. Um, they're looked to as they are a problem, they're a menace, they, it's all kinds of different ways by which they are quote unquote labeled. And once that labeling happens, everything that happens with the, the way the schools handle our young men are then multiplied. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I don't know what specific policy you're talking about, but when I think about the overall system, when we think about education, it wasn't necessarily designed for black students, right? Like we had mm -hmm. this monumental case that desegregated schools. And even with that, there was pushback. So if you do research, you think about Brown versus the Board of Education and kids that were bused from one neighborhood and integrated into white schools, there was always pushback in those instances. Like I know we've all seen the visuals of, you know, the white kids and their families shaking the school buses, or you see the Little Rock Nine entering into schools. What you don't see is that 
policies are in place that makes this illegal, right? Right. Or there's this stigma attached with being black and being bad. And what you named that's happening in present day, it stems from what happened um, decades ago, right? Um, during right. the civil rights era, even um, before that, when, when we start looking at um, juvenile justice cases and black students get getting suspended, it began in the 70s. So we're talking about some things that happened like before many of us were born. And oftentimes when schools lack um, implicit bias training for educators or administrators, when there is a heavy police force, oftentimes teachers or administrators, they use police as a form of discipline. When they don't have those classroom management skills, they look to police to handle situations. So in the book, there's a story of a kid that went to a school in Houston, that's where I live, um, a couple years ago, and she was using her cell phone in class. And the student was arrested and put into um, a, a, a move where the police had his neck on this 100 pound, had his knee on the neck of a 100 pound student, right? Because she was using a cell phone in class. So you see these things and you're like, oh, these are outliers. Things don't happen like this all the time. These are the things that make the headlines. Like things like this are happening all the time. And there's tons of research that shows that, you know, when there are no counselors on campus or when more resources are put into law enforcement instead of social emotional learning, when there is no implicit bias training and you have a teacher population that doesn't reflect the student body population, there's research that says that if a black student and a white student commits the same crime and that there's discretion in how the teacher can handle it. And I didn't mean to say crime. We're not even talking about crimes. We're just talking about offenses to the code of conduct. So it could be um, uniforms, right? Or say the uniforms, hair, pop. wearing a do-rag, yeah, right. wearing braids, um, things like that. Um, the research shows that the teacher will punish um, the black student before punishing the white student and that teacher will punish to the fullest extent that they can. Right, and then they give leeway right. to the counterpart as if the same situation is not happening. But again, we're, and I say we as, cause we're both black women, our right. children are looked at as more problematic. And I personally went to school where there were cops in our school. Um, we were considered one of the, the best in the, in the city and we still had police same. officers that were patrolling our school. They called them, you know, police resource officers, but they were actually, you know, the city's police officers in full uniform, gun, the whole nine that were there. And they were supposed to be a quote unquote deterrent. But I found like there, a lot of times there were so many situations that became more escalated. When a teacher knew that she could just go get a resource officer, nine times out of 10, they didn't look like us all the time. And then nine times out of 10, they didn't live in our same neighborhoods. So they didn't know culturally like things that were different to us versus anyone else. So then it escalates everything. Yeah. And in the book, I had the opportunity to interview a police chief at a school. And what you just named, so there's two different models that school districts use. So with the school resource officers, that's where they're contracting with um, your local police office your local police officer, your local sheriff, these police don't have any relationships with students. They could have been bouncing at a club the night before and in your school building um, the next morning. And then you see this, I would say, maybe like, a, not a phenomenon, but like this trend that happened in like the late 80s where school districts started bringing on their own police force. So a school district would have a police force and that chief would report to the superintendent just like a principal would at a school. And in doing that, like there, I've heard and I've seen like some research that states like, okay, if the school district has its own police, um, has its own police force as opposed to contracting out in the school district, then they get to build a relationship and there is more accountability. But there isn't much research that shows that either, um, either model deters crime but there is research that shows that it creates this aggressive environment, oftentimes criminalizing um, behavior that's just adolescence mischief, right? Um, police can make a potentially benign situation a little more aggressive. And oftentimes, right. if you think about like me, when I was 17, I think I thought I knew everything. 
I wasn't like the kid that will like talk back, but I've seen like those kids that will like talk back or maybe like a teacher may touch the student on the shoulder and the student jerks, right? Or does something and bumps the teacher. And now it's like, oh, well, you just hit a civil employee. And now like this teenage aggression has become criminal, right? Right, because where's the line? And that's the thing I I struggle with when it comes to this, you know, bringing in those types of resources. Where does the line with children being children, having mischievous moments? Because that's what kids do. They're, you know, sometimes our kids aren't even looked at as kids. They almost make our kids older than what they are. You know, we're talking about 16, 17 year old. They're still kids um, and they're not looked at as kids. They're looked at as grown people who are now acting aggressively and then think that is another mentality too that I've seen as well. Yeah. So in the book, I touch on that a bit. And there's also research in that same space that talks about how young girls are adultified. So when you look at school discipline, um, in terms of like arrest suspensions, you have um, black students, black males being like at the top of that pool. And then you have Hispanic males and like trailing right behind them are black women and well, black girls because they're, they're babies. Um, so black girls and you, and you look at the offenses and it's things like wearing a uniform because of the way the young woman's body is shaped, then that's considered an offense to, you know, the, the uniform dress code policy or there are there was a study done in DC where students were getting suspended for wearing hair extensions and weaves and braids. And these types of policies, although they're in black and white and they should apply to all students equally across the board, we know that they apply to black students. So we're we're seeing that we're seeing that you know boys are boys are experiencing the same thing. They're often adultified. I remember when my son was two, he was two years old and he went to um, a school that went up to eighth grade. So they had like the little babies and he was one of the, it was a private school. He was one of the only black students in the class. And I remember picking him up and the teacher was like, oh, your son was throwing up some signs today. And I'm like, throwing up signs? What? <laughs> like what, what? And turns out she shows me a picture. She took a picture and she showed me this, the signs that my two-year-old was thrown up and he threw up a peace sign which is something that we do and sometimes when we drop him off he would cry so we would do the american sign language um hand gesture for i love you so he was throwing that up throwing it up like he was manipulating his fingers to show those signs as well so peace sign and i love you and because he was black she presented to me that he was throwing up signs you wouldn't say that about a white, white kid too. You'd be impressed that they have the dexterity to be able to like move and manipulate their fingers at that age. And it at the time, like when it happened in that moment, it felt weird, but I was like, um, that she's just crazy. But as I do more research, like this is how the school to prison pipeline starts. It starts with the teacher thinking that because this student is black, this student is a thug and he must be around gangbangers, which is why he's throwing up signs in the school. And that could have resulted in a suspension. We see suspensions in black students that start as early as in daycare. Yes. And I talk about that in the book. Like there's a body of research that shows that kids are getting suspended under the age of two. And these suspensions are following them through high school. And what's happening, they're getting suspended, then they're getting expelled, then they're getting arrested. And then they eventually just go to this pipeline where they're in prison. They're not becoming productive citizens. They don't have the opportunities. And even like taking that out of it, you know, because they miss so much school time from being suspended, you're seeing gaps in the academic performance. Right. When you see there's been studies that shows that maybe um, black students are performing on the same level academically as students that don't speak English. That's a problem. And oftentimes we're looking at other things that may be the cause, but we haven't considered that when kids are suspended and taken out of their academic setting, that it impacts their ability to learn and to perform well in school. I agree with that. And so that brings me to another question. Then what is considered restorative justice? Because 
I think that's a topic that I've been hearing floating around in the news. Everyone has their different opinions on it. But what does restorative justice mean to you? Because we have all these different things that are bringing, you know, that are weighted that I know that as a black woman, I understand it. But when we try to explain it to other people, then it becomes a thing where they always point to, well, our boys, our girls, our kids are just bad. So then what is restorative justice? Yes. So restorative justice is a term that is really hard to, it's not hard to define. So it's, it's an indigenous practice that people have used to restore harm. So if we were part of a community and I did something to you, I need to make you whole. So not only do I need to apologize to you and right the wrong, the people in the community need to hold me accountable I want you to accept my apology and I want you to know that I'm never going to do it again because now right. I understand the thing that I did was harmful to you. Mm-hmm. And essentially, um, so that's a practice in that um, indigenous tribes have used forever. It became a phenomenon in the Western world in the 1970s in the prison system. And from there around like the 90s when we saw a rise in um gun violence in urban communities. That's also the time we saw an increase in police in schools and an increase in metal detectors in schools. And some districts decided to do a more restorative route where students are part of the solution in terms of how a student should be held accountable for um, right and wrong. Correct, because I was a part of the peer mediation team and that peer mediation team uh, was started from the administrators the police resource uh, officers and just a couple of the officials in the city. And they decided to have what's called what I would consider the same thing, what was called peer mediation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, what I love most about restorative justice is that it centers empathy. Like it's easy to say, Oh, Mike did this. Mike was wrong. Right. It's easy to do that. With restorative justice, you get an opportunity to have that person have a conversation. Hey, what's what's going on with you? Why did you steal this pencil? And in that, you learn that something's going on at home or this person had just experienced a tragedy that he hasn't talked about or may not even have the words to articulate like what's happening. There are no resources on campus, so there is no counselor to go to. There is no social worker, like all these other elements that we don't often see on the surface level. I feel that restorative justice gets to like the nitty gritty in that. And then it gives students that it empowers students to take accountability and to hold their peers um, responsible or, you know, offer them another alternative. When we think about some of the policies that are on the books, they weren't created by youth, but they impact the youth. Right. Oftentimes kids are just given, hey, there's this power dynamic. Like I'm right, you're wrong. I'm the adult, you're the kid, like follow this rule. And with restorative justice and maybe in your peer group, like you guys had a say in how things should work amongst your peers. Yeah, I enjoyed um, the peer mediation too, because there was a program and I can't remember the name of it, but what they did was they took a lot of the students that I would say, let's say they were considered the the problematic students. A lot of them, black and brown, Hispanic, uh, black, brown kids, um, that they considered to have like multiple offenses, whether that offense meant skipping school, whether that offense was maybe getting caught taking something in a classroom. If they were a student that was considered problematic, they then brought us and had us um, have a retreat. And we would have these retreats, I would say maybe once a month and we would go off we would not be in the school area. We would stay overnight in a camp somewhere. And we would have these conversations to try to learn why things are happening. We learned things about each other, about the students that we were, you know, in, in our own systems, in, in our own, you know, collaboratives that we didn't even realize, like you said, we're going through some really huge hardships. Um, I remember some of the students that had, didn't know they had lost a parent or, they were living with grandparents or they had been bounced around from family member to family member. These are real life situations that are on the minds of children and they are carrying out huge emotional, um, I would say not say baggage, but I would say 
um, things on their heart that they're carrying around while trying to go to school, while trying to make the right, just the right decision. And oftentimes we're not seeing, seeing them as that we're just seeing them as problems. When reality, there are so many big layered situations that are going on in the home that contribute somewhat to these issues as well. Yeah. And that sounds like an amazing program to just take students out of their environment and show them just like an alternative and give you guys that, you know, chance to just build a rapport. I think that's, that's so necessary. And I don't know, like, I, I feel like that empathy piece is really important to me because we have to see people as human. Like we have to love and respect and feel like this person deser- deserves a fair shot. This person deserves to be heard, um, to be heard, to be seen, to feel valued. And even like in the situation that you were naming, some of the trauma that students experience, you know, there are some kids that may not have a person that tells them like, you're valuable, you're important, the world needs you. That may have been the only opportunity that they actually experienced that, you know? Right. So those types of things are um, important for sure. What are three goals that you want for someone that's reading your book to take away from your book? You've put a lot of time, research, um, and heart into this project. What are three things that you want someone to take away from that book? Although everybody will have their own interpretation, what are the three things when you were writing this book that you wanted someone to take away? Oh, that's such a good question. So to my parents, uh, I would say my first goal is to parents. So I mentioned my career is in public policy. I've never set foot in the classroom. We, we did the home the homeschooling thing at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was, it was interesting. We just, we just one kid. So I can only imagine like what teachers are going through. But for parents, I would love for you to understand that this is not an anomaly. Like this is something that happens. It is part of a system. And the way systems work, you don't have to do anything and they will continue to perpetuate themselves. So I would love for parents to just be armed with this information to know that this exists and to advocate for their students. Um, Don't let schools create paper trails on your kids. Like you, you know who your kids are. Like you know that you may have a son that likes to take things apart and put them back together. And Sometimes it may be hard for him to sit down for long periods of time. Those are creative traits. Like those things are going to come in handy in the long run. Don't right. allow teachers and administrators to tell you that this is bad and deviate behavior and this kid shouldn't be doing this and, and creating a file that carries the student. So just be being mindful of what is actually happening. Um, number two, if you are an educator, Um, a takeaway would be to be mindful of the role that you play. Like I absolutely love, love like all of my teachers. There was one teacher who told me I couldn't write and I'd never be a writer. Here I am with a book. So I just said that to say that teachers play like an extremely important role in our lives. And I want for teachers to know that you also can advocate for tools, alternative tools and classroom monitoring tools. And don't always look to the police as, um, go to remedy. Yeah. Right. Like you, you don't need to do that. If, if anything, send the kids to a counselor uh, earlier when we were talking about schools that have their own police force, oftentimes those police forces have budgets upwards in the, the tens of millions of dollars. And you'll have like a counselor on campus that's making like 30 K a year. You know, there is that imbalance. Right, not, so like not being utilized to their fullest, atten- their fullest potential either. Right, they're monitoring the lunchroom instead of helping with like mental health resources. So like as a teacher, just be mindful of the role that you play, like check your implicit bias and figure it out like how, how can you grow in your role? How can you be supportive? How can you just break down some of the stereotypes that you know unconsciously happens? And then the third takeaway is a big one. I would encourage people to really get engaged in their school board meetings, right? So these policies, they didn't just show up overnight. <laughs> they, were, they were voted on by a board. Before they were voted on by a board, they were brought to the board as an agenda item. 
maybe by some special interest group, or it could have been like one particular parent, or one PTO that felt that this was the thing that needs to be their rallying cry. And then the policy was created. We need to be just as engaged in dismantling the policies that are um, happening. A lot of our policies, if you think about the zero tolerance policy, you have one fight, you're kicked out. That doesn't make any sense. None at it's all. old, it's antiquated, it makes no sense. Sending kids home for not wearing the proper uniform, it doesn't impact their ability to learn. So if I should have on a blue shirt, but I have on a pink shirt today, I shouldn't be suspended for that. I shouldn't be taken out of my classroom. Like these little policies that seem small, they are part of a bigger system that's just not working. So I would just encourage people to really be mindful in like the local politics that are happening right under your nose. You can set up a meeting with your school board leader. You can send an email. You can testify at a school board meeting. You don't have to be that person that's at every single meeting, but just be mindful of what's what's going on and how it impacts you and your family. I'm glad that you said that. Um, there's been a rumbling, I know here in Philadelphia. So if any Philadelphia parent that is listening, you know that there has been a rumbling. One of our, actually the head of our of the, of the Philadelphia school district, uh, my kids are not a part of that because they go to a private school. But for the other children that are in that school district, that um, superintendent is on his way out. But there's policies that are going to double play for the people that are left behind. And we need to know who those key players are that are making those decisions because a lot of this, a lot of the issues that are happening now in the school district of, Lang I mean, of Philadelphia is very prevalent. So no matter where you live, no matter what district you're in, the, the advice that you gave was spot on. A lot of times parents are waiting until decisions are made and then saying something about it instead of saying something as the process is being um, done to raise your concern. A lot of parents are not in the, the business of calling. You can simply call and try to talk to someone, you know, the emailing thing is amazing to do. Also, they have Facebook pages, state your concerns there. Um, a lot of these school districts have pages and a lot of the parents are in them, even some of the private ones, speak up so that your voice is heard. More voices that are heard, we're hoping that, you know, it, it doesn't fall on deaf ears, but we need people to be an advocate. And I think that's the biggest thing. The children that are in, involved in all these different policies, are being left behind because no one is thinking about the child. Everybody's just trying to find a way so that we can figure out. And it, to be honest with you, some of it is just a, a way so they can get the questionable students that they don't want there out. So some of these mm -hmm. policies are made so they can do just that. But no one is thinking about children long-term about somehow these policies will be very hurtful. So we definitely need to speak up. Yeah. And even, so my, my book, talk specifically about school discipline, but there are, you know, like other things happening that, you know, impact students of color here in Texas. I think you've seen the headlines where they're trying to ban specific books that yes. talk about quote unquote critical race theory, in which case people aren't educated on like what the term means, but little policies like that, like little headlines where they're banning books what happens when people don't know how to read? Like, let's think about this historically. How did that play out for Black people? Like, it's, you, you have to be present. You have to, like you said, use your voice. Right, and, and, and as a child, if you're in the library, you want to, you may gravitate towards a book that has the, the characters of the book that look like you. So mm -hmm. taking certain books that there are, even with my children, um, my oldest is in like the seventh grade. There are books that talk about race theory that she gravitates towards because it's made for her. It's in a, in a, in a likeness that she can understand. And so taking those important books out just because of basically white guilt is not okay. Um, at the end of the day, we need to have the whole full conversation and they're trying to find ways to erase parts of the the history because it's now, you know, they don't want to be looked at as the, as the problem and no one wants to accept that. But at the same time, that's stopping little brown and um, black children from being able to see themselves, to know their culture. And um, black culture or black um, history is a part of American history. And we can't mm -hmm. just take it out just because it no longer suits, you know, the, the bigger agenda. Or what is the bigger agenda? But that's a that's a different that's a, topic. Right. I was about to say there's a whole nother 
<laughs> topic with that. Um, and I'm so grateful for this, that you actually took the time to write this book. First of all, the, the cover of it is absolutely stunning. Um, I love it. And um, I'm hoping that one, if you're listening to this and you're saying, how can I get more? How am I going to be able to, to find this book? Let them know where they can find the book. Yes. So you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, right now we have a 99 cent promotion for the ebook through the month of January. So grab a copy. And if you love it, leave a five-star review. Um, I believe on there is also my author bio. So when you're ready for a paperback copy, let me know. I will be sending out autographs, copies to all of our supporters within the next couple weeks. And you can also request um, the book in your local libraries. So schools, um, city libraries, universities, like the world is your oyster. I do want to get this in as many hands as possible. It's just a tool. It's not like the ultimate tool, but it's a really right. good guide. And I spent a lot of time like sourcing out the stories that I, that I share the research and even implementing my experience and how it feels like as a parent, like raising a black son, like seeing all of this data like your kids are in private school and you know we started out in private school and I'm like I feel like he should have like this great public education like we're paying for it through our taxes it right I feel like it shouldn't have to be like either or but in some some cases it is right but I I also want people to you know feel welcomed and feel like they see themselves and they should have teachers that look like them. And we should all be like striving for just like this excellence in education because it helps the country as a whole. Like we want our kids to graduate and get jobs and buy houses and do all the things. And yeah, and I want this book to be a resource to get us like moving in that, that right direction. Well, I'm definitely going to uh, make sure that my children's school gets their fair share of copies so that they can have it as well. Um, because again, just because my kids go to private school, it doesn't mean that they don't have some, if not more issues um, that are on the plate when you have private schools, because now that's a whole nother level of bureaucracy that has to then be gone through. So I've dealt with that as well. Um, my kids have been in the same school since they were pretty much in kindergarten. And we've had to get in there in the trenches and, and make certain, you know, statements and make sure certain things were done. Like advocating for your child is one of the biggest things that as a parent, you will ever have to do. And unfortunately, as a black and brown student of color, you, you got to get in there and really make sure your voice is heard. And I know that we spend a lot of time doing just that, you know, raising red flags when we see certain things, instead of just accepting it as a status quo. Um, we probably are pretty much well-known amongst our children's school. <laughs> um, we're pretty well-known because we do advocate. And I also teach my children to advocate as well. I always let them know that, you know, respectfully, they should be able to learn how to speak up, but to know that this is how they're going to be perceived in that. But then when I come to pick them up, I'm going to carry the rear and we're going to make sure we make some noise. So we need more parents to make sure they're doing the same. Yeah, I love to hear that. Where can they find you so that they can keep a hold of what you're doing? Because if this spreads the way that it needs to spread, first of all, did y'all hear she said 99 cents ebook. So that means everybody has a dollar. So every listener, I have amazing listeners. Every listener needs to go and click on that link on Amazon. First of all, you're already on Amazon buying all the things as well. You know, you're already all the, all the things they come to my house too frequently. So if they're coming to my house, I know they're coming to yours. You have a dollar. Go ahead and hit the button. We're going to have all the information in the show notes. I want y'all to click, hit, and get this book into your hands. Read it as a resource. Share it with your friends. Send Don't, don't share them the book. Send them the link so they can get their own. It's a dollar for the month of January. So we're going to help and make sure we do our part and click that link so that we can do our part in getting more information. Um, a lot of things are just about gathering that good information, but where can they find you and all of the things with social media? Yeah, so I'm mainly on Instagram. That's where I like to have fun and like show a little bit about this parenting life. <laughs> and I'm also on LinkedIn. So if you're looking for like the more put together, poised side of me, I'm on LinkedIn. And it's just under my name, Arshel Monsanto. 
And again, we will make sure we keep everything clickable. And yes, LinkedIn is where you, you know, you keep your poise. But in Instagram, I like to be a little bit more freer than I am on LinkedIn. But that's just the way the platform works. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on our show, making this amazingly beautiful book. And it's not even just about the book being beautiful. It really is about giving us another tool. We need as many tools as we can to help children and anything that can help a child to be able to be heard, to be able to be listened and supported. I think that's the biggest thing. Feeling supported is huge. And that's what we want to make sure we spread as well. Well, thank you. And I appreciate being here. I appreciate your listeners and all that you do to just help spread awareness to parents. It's it's so vital. It's hard out here. So like your resources have been just vital and I love listening to your podcast and I'm happy to be here. So thank you for being the highlight of my 2022. Amazing. So Friday, people, we are increasing our books. If you've been listening, even on the on the blog, you know that I'm a blogger as well. You know that I'm trying to do a few books a month. We're going to increase our learning. You can do you can get this book and you're going to let's click this. Let's get this and make sure that it just blows off the map. We want to make sure that we get this in all different places. I'm thinking about my goddaughter who has she's you know in college and they're always looking for books. They told us from the gate when we went to visit her, like, if you have a book that you want, go ahead and send it to us. So I'm going to make sure I do my part and just send it to as many people that I can so that we can get this out. If you are listening to this episode and you're figuring out how you can help, not only do you want to click and get the book, but send this episode to some other people because they may be somebody listening that has more resources that can help. And we want to make sure that we get this book as one of the top, um, not just for, for the purposes of stats, but just for the purpose of support and the supporting an author. Look, I'm a writer. I understand everything when it comes to writing. This is not something you do just to do. When your heart is in it, it comes out in the things that you put out. And we want to make sure that we are also helping to support a fellow writer. So make sure that you support in your ways by one sharing. Remember, it's free 99 to share the episode, right? You can then review the episode, but also it's beyond bigger than me. Let's support this amazing writer and get this amazing book out to the world. So what did you think? Um, I thought the information that she was, that our show was giving us is definitely something that we should, again, be open and willing to listen, to have conversations. Um, and also, too, I'm so grateful for this book. I'm definitely going to get my own copy. I'm hoping that you get your own copy. It's 99 cent, one whole dollar. We are already on Amazon and buying all the things. Make sure that you grab yourself a copy. And if nothing else, grab it because you're curious, you know, grab it because you want to hear another perspective. Um, because again, life is about, is about perspective and we want to make sure that we're bringing that to the table. Now, today's drink of the day is the Starbucks fireball drink. You can make this at home. You really just need, um, different forms of tea, a little bit of honey and peppermint extract. Um, and why is that the drink of the day? Well, because I am healing from COVID. So the today's drink is the Starbucks fireball drink. If you can get to yourself to a Starbucks, not that I'm, they're not sponsoring this, but you know, I am team Starbucks all the way. If you can get there to grab it, have one for me. I did get some gift cards for Starbucks over the Christmas holidays, so I cannot wait and plan to definitely indulge the second that I'm able to get free and get tested and be good to go. That is what I'm going to be doing. I will be grabbing myself a Starbucks Fireball. But to be honest with you, I've made the same version minus the honey here at the house. Um, and I know we can make these drinks at home. I know we can make Starbucks from home. And I do to, for the most part. I actually make more Starbucks at home than I've ever done in my entire life. But the second that I can go let them do what they do, I'm going to let them do what they do. I am not a barista. And although my drinks be tasting mad good, they're still not the same thing as Starbucks. Y'all can sit there and say that these drinks are overpriced. And maybe they are. I'm still going to keep drinking them just like anything else we do. We make choices. I choose the Starbucks life. The Starbucks life definitely has chose chosen me. Um, I hope that you have an amazing weekend. I plan to 
get tested and make sure that I'm in the clear. I had to cancel all of media events just until I was able to make sure that I'm completely clear. I want to be completely responsible. I have definitely gone way beyond above the CDC days of being of being sick um, because I don't agree with it. But I want to make sure that when I do head out into public, I'm going to still wear my mask. That's just what I do. I've been doing that. But in addition to that, I want to make sure that I'm not going to get anybody sick in the most least way. Um, and I also work with a PR agent who I don't want to make sure he gets sick, although he got sick on his own. And um, with that as well, I hope that you have a great weekend. We will be doing some last minute, you know, preps to get the kids back into the gear of going back to school because we're hoping that they will test out and be good to go to go back to school back on Monday. I'll keep you posted on that. And then hopefully if that's the case, then yes, I will be gearing to go back into media events starting next week and they will start to hit pretty quick, uh, especially because I've had to take some events and push them over to this next week. So keep your eyes open, uh, you know, try to keep everybody abreast and you know that I have a blog. So make sure you follow the blog at toy time, T O I T I M E dot org. If this was your first time and you were listening to us, I hope that you are deciding to come back. We are always going to have different conversations. You can go back. There's five seasons to go and listen to the conversations that we've had in the past. Um, in addition to that, make sure that you share, share this episode, review this episode as well as uh, subscribe. All three things are completely free 99. They don't cost you a dollar to do. So enjoy and have a great weekend. We'll be back with you next week with Conversations with Toy. Thank you as always for joining me. And I know that even in the deepest or joyful conversations, that there's something we can learn and apply. Until next time, I hope that you are doing better. If not, we will be back to talk some more and handle it. Peace to you and yours. Stay grounded.